0: Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> a few short readings from a few short readings from the prophet Jeremiah. <clears throat> Found there on page 10 in your bulletin. Now the word of the Lord came to me Jeremiah saying before I formed you in the womb I knew you And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up And to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. From chapter 29 Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And from chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts. And I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for your presence and leading and your transforming work on us as we hear this, our Father, in Jesus' saving name. <clears throat> Amen. If you were to ask any serious Christian if the world needs to hear God's word, I would hope the answer to that question would be very obvious. We know that from the very beginning, human beings have been in trouble because they have not been listening to God's word. But I think what would be quite a bit less obvious is if you ask a whole bunch of Christians, well, who are God's chosen agents of the word? The Bible calls them prophets, agents of God's word to the world. What I've been trying to put before you in this particular series of sermons is that on the day of Pentecost, it may not be quite so obvious when you read it in in Acts 2, but on the day of Pentecost when Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit on the church, part of what's going on there is that the mantle of Christ's prophetic ministry, his authority as a prophet, he is giving that mantle to the church so that we will carry on his prophetic ministry in the world. Now, that's a, that's a daunting idea. In fact, it's daunting for me, and I preach for a living. And so we've been turning in this series to some of the Old Testament prophets to try, try to learn something about how prophets live and how they minister, so we can get some examples, maybe. I think it's been a comfort for, for me, I hope for you, to find, as we've looked at these prophets in the Old Testament, that they are very ordinary people. You know, Elijah had a nature like ours, as awesome as his ministry was, James tells us, And yet in all of their ordinariness, we've been finding that God used these people to pray his word, to live his word, to speak his word in extraordinary ways in their households on up to much larger stages. And again here in, in Jeremiah's case, you see again what we could call the foolishness of prophethood. There's something kind of foolish about God using mortals like us to speak his word, and you have it here again in chapter one, uh, the chapter 1 text there in verse 6. You see that Jeremiah is a youth, and he's not a particularly confident youth. He doesn't feel like he's up for the task of speaking for God. And yet in verse 10 of that first reading, you find that God says, you know what, Jeremiah, your self-opinion doesn't really matter that much. I am setting you over nations and over kingdoms, and so you've got this child, and yet he is being set by God to speak authoritatively over nations and kingdoms. Now what is distinctive about Jeremiah's ministry, different from the other prophets we've looked at so far, what's distinctive about him is his particular historical moment, and how God shifts the focus of his prophetic ministry and message in response to that particular moment. And the first thing I want to just talk about is that Jeremiah is ministering in a time of what I'm going to call pronounced transition. Pronounced transition. That's distinctive in Je- for, for Jeremiah and some of the other prophets of his era. And I want, It's that chapter one reading that I want to sort of show this to you. This is a time of transition, and prophetic ministry is always sensitive to times of big change, momentous changes. We're awake to that as prophets of God. And at first, you know, Jeremiah's ministry, it looks a lot like the resistance movement, the prophetic resistance movement that we looked at last time under with Elijah and Elisha. Because like Elijah and Elisha, Jeremiah is clearly, if you look at the opening verses of his his prophecy, he is clearly speaking to a wicked regime. Actually, a series of kind of wicked uh kings and 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 a very wicked nation That, that actually escalates a lot over Jeremiah ministers about 40 years and over those 40 years things do not get better in the southern kingdom of Judah where he's ministering things get progressively much worse the kings get worse it's just it's a very kind of ugly time so he looks a little bit like Elijah and Elisha but the major difference is that Elijah and Elisha were ministering in a time when now they're in the northern kingdom of Israel. But they're ministering in a time when, for all of its evils, and the evils of the northern kingdom at that time, as you remember, were just immense. I mean, Ahab was a scoundrel of a king. But for all of the evils of that northern kingdom, there was no indication that that northern kingdom was going to cease to exist. Things at the kingdom level were fairly stable. The king needed to change. He either needed to repent or go. Go repent or be removed but the reason ahab and the wicked kings of the omri dynasty needed to be ousted or else repent was so that the kingdom could be renewed by returning to what god spoke at sinai and so elijah and Elisha are ministering in a kingdom that can be renewed even if we got to get rid of the you know the king needs to go because he's in rebellion against the high king But the kingdom will be renewed by going back to what God said at Sinai. And so Elijah and Elisha have a kind of retrospective ministry. Elijah, where does he go when he's running away from Jezebel? Back to where? Back to Sinai. Got to get back to that word God spoke in history. So that's Elijah and Elisha's ministry, looking back to what God spoke at Sinai. But it's not so with Jeremiah. There are moments in the story of God's people when much more momentous changes are looming. When we have quite clearly reached the end of something, and we are about, that's about to give way to something else, even if it's not totally clear what that something else is. This can happen sometimes just through natural life cycles. You know, we've reached the end of 2021. We will never live that year again. That's fairly momentous. Big change just in the natural turning of the year. Prophets are sensitive to those kind of changes. A new season of life. Maybe an institution now has just served its purpose. It's time for this institution to stop and to cease its work because it's just it's run its course. Those are natural times of momentous change. But sometimes, you know, the change point comes because of a long-delayed judgment that's now arriving. That Hebrew word Ichabod, the glory has departed. God has numbered the days of this kingdom, and he has finished it. It's St. Augustine writing his city of God at the end of the Roman Empire. It's the Christians in the late Iron Curtain in the 1980s as things are beginning to fall apart in that regime. And that's Jeremiah. This is a time of momentous change. In in youthful Jeremiah's day, there are superpowers rising. It used to be that in Israel you had enemies. You know, you had Philistines, Moabites, Syrians. Nobody's seen anything like the Assyrians. This is a military Wehrmacht. This is a superpower unprecedented in the Middle East. They will dominate the ancient Near East for a century, absolutely pulverizing enemy peoples. And it is clear with that specter rising, and if that were not bad enough, Jeremiah can already look ahead and see Babylon rising behind Assyria, which is a whole other story. As if all that were bad enough, it's happening right at the time when God's patience with Israel's spiritual adultery has clearly been exhausted. It is coming to an end. This is a time of pronounced transition. And in those times, what God's people need is vision. They need perspective. Where to from here? As one thing is changing to another. One thing is ending and another is opening before us. And that's what Jeremiah shows us. He's a visionary prophet in this time of transition. And Israel's prophets, right around this time that Jeremiah is writing, they begin to show... To Israel, not just what God will tear down, as we see there in verse 10, but the new thing that God is going to do. And it's interesting, this is kind of punctuated by the fact this is the first time since Moses we have prophets really writing their prophecies. They begin to inscribe, like Moses inscribed the Torah, they begin to inscribe the vision. And what I want to show you today, just quickly, is that Jeremiah gives us two parts to the prophetic vision, the fresh vision that prophets give in times of pronounced transition. They give God's people two parts of the vision. Number one, permanent things and practical things. Permanent things and practical things. You see them both with Jeremiah. In the chapter 31 reading, the third of the three texts there on page 10, you see the permanent things. Jeremiah begins to talk about who God is, what God is going to do, in continuity with all that he's been doing in Israel's history so far. And this tells us something about prophetic work. A crucial prophetic task in times of major transition and upheaval, an absolutely crucial prophetic task in these times, is to help God's people resist the seduction of immediacy. We as God's people have got to resist the seduction of immediacy. This, pastor, this, do you see this? And this, whatever it is, and it's, you know, often really, I mean, it doesn't get much worse than being invaded by the Assyrians or the Babylonians. This, you know, I I find this in my heart, I'm sure you find it in yours, this thing, this immediate thing, it just begins to consume our attention, begins to consume our focus and our energy. And prophets know something they know that we are in no condition to respond to what changes unless we are grounded in what does not change. Prophets understand you and I are in no place to respond well to what changes unless we are grounded in what does not change. And so the prophets are irritating. They don't necessarily talk about the crisis that much. You know, they, they do talk about it, but they always talk about it with this steady, patient, focused reflection to keep God's people keep before them who God is and what God is going to do. That is the focus of prophetic ministry, and they, they, they keep talking about God and what God is going to do, even, I would say, especially in the times of crisis, when it just feels like, surely we should stop talking about God and start talking about Assyria, and the prophets don't have any interest in Assyria, except insofar as Assyria is in the hand of the Lord as one of his, you know, tools that he's using. They are Focused on God, who he is, what he's going to do. Because, you know, Jeremiah understands something. You see it here in this Jeremiah 31 text. There's something way more momentous going on in this story than a contest between Nineveh and Jerusalem, the capital of Assyria and Judah's capital. That's a contest. That's going to be, you know, Assyria and then eventually Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar will come. That's all, that's, a, that's momentous, but it's not nearly so momentous as the covenant that God has made with his people Israel and those are the people who as God has covenanted with them, God is gonna bring the Messiah through that people. Like that's the, that's the momentous thing. God is just working out that plan. That's the really big news that really kind of shrinks the Nineveh-Jerusalem contest down to size, and everything going on in this current crisis, Jeremiah tells Israel, everything going on in this crisis right here and now is serving that unalterable purpose of God. He is going to bring the Messiah, and he is going, actually, it's interesting, God is going to demolish this political kingdom of Judah. That's part of the plan. And you guys realize that sometimes things that we hold dear, God is going to smash them because that's part of his plan to advance his purposes through his Messiah, and that is, that's going to happen. Jeremiah makes that very clear, but out of the ashes of this political kingdom of Judah, as it will fall to Babylon eventually, God talks here about this new covenant that he is going to restore his kingdom on earth. He is going to do it as he promised in Eden and to Abraham and to Moses. He is going to renew creation through the offspring of Israel. In fact, he goes so far as to say, look, if the stars go out, and the sun and moon stop giving their light, that's when I'll quit on my plan to restore creation through, through the seed of Abraham, through the offspring of Israel. If you can get into the measurement of the heavens and the foundations of the earth and explore all of that, then you will be able to say God will cast off Israel and cancel his plans in this covenant. Who God is, what God is gonna do, and Jeremiah just sings this beautiful song of God's faithfulness and what he has promised for the future in the middle of the oncoming horror of the Assyrians you know what I've found as a pastor when I stand up here and try to do this each week in times of crisis I find the same thing with God's people today and you will find it as you minister I find the same thing today that Jeremiah found then and that is that people God's people they they, they get impatient with that prophetic focus because the crisis You know, the the whole, the endless talk about who God is and what Jesus has done for us and what God has promised off in the future, I mean, I feel it too. It just sometimes doesn't feel that immediately relevant. It feels too far out there, too far off in the future. I mean, great, Jeremiah, thanks so much. You know, centuries from now, a new covenant. What about, and that's, our hearts wrestle with that immediacy we're swept up in the urgency and I've listened to Christians I've listened to them you know they're swept up in the urgency of the crisis and they you to want to, you want to talk about worship they're like worship you find this even in people's small small our small crises in life that the people their their lives start to really go to pieces what's the first thing that goes i don't have time to worship i'm in a crisis Prayer. You want, to, you want to talk about prayer. You want to talk about theology. You want to, you want to have like a, a get together and teach about theology. I mean, do you read the news? You want to sit and talk about principles and, you know, what about the immediate practicalities? And I feel that too. I have days when I pick up, you know, the scriptures and what it emphasizes and books of. Christian doctrine and you know sort of these big print matters of Christian principle and, and it just feels like how is this getting to the crisis and you just want to say to the prophet where are your priorities man can you not see what is happening where are your priorities and you know what the, prophet, the prophet's answer to that is that's exactly the right question where are your priorities church I'm not saying this to you directly but just as God's people where are your priorities we must come to recognize that impatience with the Endless prophetic talk about who God is and what God will do. We need to recognize that impatience in our hearts as both carnal and cheerless. What do I mean by carnal? Carnal is not a word we use that much, but carnal refers to the body, to the flesh. Carnality is a way of looking at the world that sees only what can be seen. That's carnality. Carnality sees in terms of flesh and blood. That's what it's obsessed with, flesh and blood. It sees what is seeable, and that's where its focus is. That is carnal. And for Christians, that way of looking at the world, you know, we can see it so clearly in non-believers. When we look at the way they look at the world, and they, only, they literally believe that all there is is what can be sort of seen and measured and observed. And, and you, you know, as a Christian, there's something instinctively that you say, that's like looking at the world through one eye full of cataracts, There is so much more to be seen. Christianity to its core is about the supernatural, the invisible, that which cannot be measured, cannot be observed, cannot be brought down to our level and studied. You know, when your heart looks at the Bible and you're reading through the scriptures and you're, you're reading this stuff that seems grandiose about, you know, God and, you know, the invisible realm and, you know, hosts of heaven and God's big plans for the world, if there is something in your heart that looks at that and says, you know, that just doesn't feel like the real world. Can I ask you guys something? What is the real world? See, you and I think the stuff that's in our face every day is the reality, and we kind of have to detach from reality to go do the God thing. And if you really understand, you know, the reality of reality, you realize actually what is in our face every day is fleeting. It is vapor, beloved. It is here one day and gone the next, and God remains. Amen? God is reality. It is he who gives reality to any reality we can actually see and sense. And I have just come to believe for myself and for all of us, our capacity for reality is just so shriveled and minimal. We are obsessed with what can be seen, it's carnality. You know, and if it's relevance you want, this impatience with the talk, God and his plans and his ways. Oh man, we want something relevant. Do you want something relevant? Me too, you want relevance? Impatience is cheerless. You wanna drive yourself into the ground? Take your eyes off what doesn't change and just obsess about what does change. You know, if the, if the unchangeable is not unchangeable, do you, beloved people, realize how at sea we actually are? If there's no rock, if there's no foundation, there's just the water that roars and, 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 and throws its waves, that's all there is. We are at sea. If the unchangeable does not remain unchanged, there's no comfort in that. There's no comfort in looking at what changes. It'll be different tomorrow. This is something I've realized even in the last two years. Part of the reason why reading news exhausts me is because I don't know how you can summon enough outrage every 20 minutes. The new thing! Oh, really? Was... (sighs) This unwavering prophetic focus on God and the hope of what God has promised, it's not escapism, beloved. It is just being more connected to the unchangeable God than the changeable world. It is having a rock, and that is the basis for cheer and composure when the storm is raging and everything's changing around you. Jeremiah, like all the other prophets, he says, behold your God who claims you I will be their God, who reveals himself to you. They will all know me from the least to the greatest, who forgives you. I'll remember their iniquity no more, who empowers you. I'll write my law in their inmost hearts. Behold your God. And unlike Jeremiah's peers, you know, we are in the new covenant. This for them was centuries away. We're actually in it. It has happened When did God forgive our iniquities and remember our sins no more? That's the cross. How does he write the law in the heart? That's the Holy Spirit. This promise of the new covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus and the Messiah and and the Holy Spirit as never before in history. And you know, that really is at the heart of our prophetic witness to the world, is it not? My prophetic witness to the world as a Christian is not that I have the answer to the crisis. (laughs) My prophetic witness to the world is that I know the God who rules the crisis. Listen to St. Listen to, to Augustine he, he, in his, his wonderful passage from, from the city of God and he, he talks to Christians about how to respond when the pagans taunt them because they're suffering. So you know the pagans want to mock the Christians because oh if your God's so awesome how come you're having all these earthly sufferings? Listen to, listen to Augustine. This is Christian witness. He says the whole family of the highest and true God has a consolation which depends neither upon falsehood nor upon hope in those things which falter and fail. Also, its members have a life in this age which is not in the least to be regretted, a life which is the school of eternity in which they make use of earthly goods without grasping after them and are proved and corrected by evils. As to those who say to them when they chance to incur temporal ills, where is thy God? Let these tell us where their own gods are when they suffer those very things for the avoidance for which they worship those gods. Where's your money? Where's your sex? Where's your power? Where's your status? Where's your Baal? Where's your Moloch? For we answer our God is everywhere, nowhere confined. He can be present unseen. When he subjects me to adversity, this is either to test me or to chastise my sins. And he reserves an eternal reward for my pious endurance of temporal ills. But who are you that we should speak to you even of your own gods, much less of our God who is to be feared above all gods? For all the gods of the nations are demons, but the Lord made the heavens. Permanent things, beloved. Permanent things. Never get tired of them. Now I understand there's a need for practical things, and the prophets do too. I had a brother tell me after the last sermon and I I respected his candor. He said, you know, Ben, it's good to hear God is king. It's good to hear God is working. We take to heart what you say that our situation may not be the worst ever or the worst anywhere but it still feels like we're getting crushed and it feels like there's worse to come in the shadows. I hear you. Cause you still have to live in the exile. This is exile. This is exile. I mean, you don't even we can't even imagine. If a military force moved in, just like took over, just grabbed you, smashed your life, took everything you own, took your kids, took your spouse, dragged you off to some foreign country and made you turn you into a slave, I and mean, that's your life now. That's it. You're not going home. You know, this is a veil of tears. This is injustice. This is trauma. This is unsettling. And we need practical things as well as permanent things. We need those permanent things. We also need wisdom. And so visionary prophets give that second part. They don't just show, show us what God will do. They also show us what we can do. And I've just been poring over this chapter 29 text, the middle section there. If I had to summarize those four verses, Jeremiah 29, four through seven, I think I would summarize them in these, this simple phrase. Jeremiah basically says to these Israelites in exile now, in exile, basically, this is his message you be present and participate. You be present there in Babylon and participate. Build your house, plant your garden, get married, have a bunch of kids, have a bunch of grandkids, seek the welfare of your city and pray for it because when it prospers, you will prosper. Be present and participate. Now, if I'm sitting in Babylon, thank you very much, having been dragged here by enemy soldiers, this is hard to hear. I don't want to be in Babylon. In fact, I should not be in Babylon. I don't want to participate with these people. I don't want to be a part of this city. I'm a Jerusalemite, thank you very much. I'm not a Babylonian. I want to go home. And if I have to live here, I want to insulate from these pagans. That's what I want. And yet, as Jeremiah envisions these exiles in this horrible situation, what does he envision? He envisions them inhabiting this place, being here, now, and prayerfully investing themselves, not only in the growth of the church, but in the good of their pagan neighbors. I want you to notice what these exiles in Jeremiah's vision are not doing, beloved. And I trust you'll be able to connect the dots to your situation in 2022. They are not wallowing in self-pity that they have to live through this time. They are not wallowing in self-pity because they're living through a crisis moment in history. They are not obsessing over world events. I've often wondered what the exile would have looked like during the internet age. Everybody online checking out the latest thing from Assyria and Babylon just, and, and having long conversations over coffee about it. They're not obsessing about world events. They probably know what's going on. They're not obsessing about it. Interestingly, they are not living in the past. They're not living in their minds back in the glory days of David and Solomon, nor are they living in some fantasy of the future, you know, just kind of barely being where they are and kind of living mentally in what will be in some future life. They don't have some alternate life that they're, you know, just constantly looking over the fence, wish, you know, that's the life I imagine for myself. That's, what I, that's the kind of world I want to live in. They, that's not what's going on here. They're not mentally elsewhere. They're not halfway out the door. You'll also notice they are not stupefied on entertainment. They're not dealing with their stress by hours and hours and hours of mindless entertainment from popular culture. They are present. They are planting. They're bearing fruit. They are investing. They're participating. And I'd like you guys for a moment, we're almost done, to think with me at like prophets. What practical things, with that text in mind, what practical things do you and I need to hear? I've been wrestling this, with this for days. driving my wife a little crazy. What practical things, in light of that text, do we need to hear in January 2022? You know, we're not exiles to a godless city. We were born here. We've grown up in a godless society, so we're already here. We're kind of native grown, if you like, but we're the church here. And yet, as I've thought and thought and thought about this text and the practical direction that Jeremiah gives, I think it speaks to us. And the reason I think it speaks to us is because I've noticed, and I think you have too, as the cancer of godlessness has gotten to a very advanced stages in our society. Two of the bitter symptoms of that cancer of godlessness have been a loosening of roots and a thinning of bonds, a loosening of people's roots a thinning of the bonds that attach us to places and people. We are very much more and more as a society and as individuals in this society, we're really not tied to a place and our bonds with people are getting thinner and thinner and thinner in a lot of ways. Many people would think almost nothing of leaving one place and going to another. Many people do not have communities that would tie them anywhere. Within those communities, the kinds of connection that happen are often more and more superficial. People are not tied to religious traditions. They're not tied to cultural traditions. They're not tied to family traditions. People don't, in some cases, even have family, really, that they connect to. They don't have deep friendships. Actually, one of the most shocking things I find in talking to 21st century people is how phenomenally alone they are. No church no family in many cases, no real deep friendships. 50% or something of people now that, you, that are surveyed say that they have no deep friendships. You know, for all the talk about cre- connectivity, we talk, like, we're, we're such a connected society. No we're, not. no, we're not, because our worship in our godless society, our worship, I use that word advisedly, our worship of unfettered freedom, absolute freedom to do what I want, and unlimited choices on which to exercise my freedom, that fantasy, that worship of unrestricted freedom, unlimited options, that is absolutely at odds with thick, committed, costly, fruitful, enduring bonds. You cannot be unfetteredly free and be bound to another in love. You cannot have all your options open and be bound to another in in deep, thick, costly, fruitful love. Marriage taught me this. My marriage is 20 years thick. And I have just gotten to a point where I don't have a lot of patience anymore with the idea that as a married man, I'm not having fun. Because what's fun is the sexual free-for-all that passes for sexual liberty in our generation. I have a bond with my wife. It has taken me 20 years and taken her 20 years to build. I'll take that thickness any day. It has a richness and a depth and a profundity and a power and a vitality to it that you're never going to get on a one-night stand or with your girlfriend you've had for six months. Bonding is an art. It takes investment. And so my word to you is be present. Be present and participate. Be where you are and invest. Can I put a little bug in your head for this week, and I hope the rest of your life, this bug's been running around in my head. I want to plant this bug. I hope it runs around in your head all the time. You're an agent of Jesus' kingdom wherever you are, and so what I'd like you to think about this week, every single place you find yourself, I'd like you to look around. Here's the bug. Look around wherever you are, physically wherever you are. Just look around for a second now and then, and ask yourself, am I thickening or thinning my bonds with this person? Am I thickening or thinning my bond with this person this applies from the most brief casual encounter to the most intimate relationship in your life the the bible says love binds everything together love will draw you if you're willing to to let the love of christ work in you it will draw you to a thicker deeper more meaningful investment in that stranger behind the the cashier to these neighbors that you frankly don't really want to know these coworkers workers it's just easy to have the most superficial relations with to this friendship that you've kind of let go stale it'll draw you to deeper thicker investment in your church don't just show up and take show up and give it'll draw you to bond to have thick bonds investing bonds with your spouse you know some of us have marriage problems you know why we have marriage problems because we stopped investing really truly that's why marriages fail the small stuff stops It'll draw you to invest in your child, invest in your parent, you, you, you young ones. Do you realize how much investing you could do in your parents and you don't? Why, because you're selfish. I mean, it's just to get real, you're selfish. Love bonds, it'll draw you to invest Thickly in your brother, your sister, whatever. You want to be the salt of the earth? Simone Vale has a sh- shocking line in her book, The Need for Roots. Listen to this. She says, The fact that a state of friendship exists or doesn't exist between two men or two groups of men can in some cases prove decisive for the destiny of the human race. The fact that a state of friendship exists or does not exist between two men or two groups of men may in certain cases prove decisive for the destiny of the human race. You don't even know how God may use those thick bonds to advance his gospel. I will tell you this, the gospel will not advance without them. But it's a waning art. It requires initiative. There's always something to do to strengthen a bond. It's just always easier not to do it. It takes humility because it'll show you very quickly you don't have the knowledge, you don't have the resources, the skill, the virtue to bond well, so you have to learn those things. It requires sensitivity to damage. This bond is broken. Do I have the courage before the Lord to begin to wade into the repair work? It takes wisdom to fit your love to the receiver of that love, to realize that sometimes the best way to thicken this bond is just give this person space. Give the Lord space to work. Allow some failure. Extend some patience. And it requires physicality the great challenge in the digital age. The Apostle Paul, listened to the bonding language. He says, I long to see you, that I may, to see you. I don't want to write a letter. I want to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. But you got to see each other. There's something that happens in physical presence that does not happen even in a letter, let alone whatever else. So that's it. Are we nearing a momentous transition? Are we near a momentous, like, world-altering transition? I don't know, and we don't need to know. But I'd like to encourage us, beloved saints, let's spend 2022 marinating in the permanent things and learning together the practical things. And God will make us through that a light in any darkness that we encounter. Can we do that together? Amen. Bless us in that work, we pray, Father, for your glory. Amen.